0: So in the UK, uh, we're in a culture which basically despises pastors and preachers. Uh, The dad's army vicar is a nincompoop. Um, The Methodist preacher recently introduced in Poldark is naive. Uh, For the vicar of Granchester, God is more of a problem than a father, if you've seen any of those things uh, on the TV. To preach or to be to be preachy, it has a very negative connotation and that's the environment in which we operate and we can be influenced by that, we can be so influenced by that as perhaps to uh, downplay our calling or to distort it. Um, we often react in one of two ways, we see different pastors acting in different ways, um, either partly at least to go with the world's assessment and kind of become more of a pal to the congregation rather than a pastor, just a kind of a mate. That's one way people react. Um, the other is to become over-academic in a concern to impress and so kind of build or regain um, uh, credibility. And, and either, either way, that those things are a little bit off-beam. Either way, we miss the mark. And I believe that seeing our calling to the pastoral ministry, seeing our calling in the context of the biblical doctrine of election, acts as actually a great corrective to those distortions. It can bring new confidence, seriousness, joy to uh, pastoral ministry. So our conference, as we've said, focuses on the two-brother theme in Genesis, and so we take a look at the classic text concerning Jacob and Esau, which Romans 9 uses to establish the truth of God's electing grace. We're looking then at Genesis 25, 19-34. Um, we'll look at that and we'll think, well, how does this, How does the doctrine of election taught here, Apply into uh, the the pastor's work. So, just two very straightforward. We're going to survey the passage and then we're going to try to apply the passage. So, first of all, surveying the passage. A number of features to notice here. First, we are one of those textual dividers of Genesis. uh, Verse 19, this is the account of which we've been reminded of uh, in David's paper in particular uh, yesterday. And what follows is, of course, what was produced by or the offspring of whoever is, is, is mentioned here, um, the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. But notice, Isaac is introduced as Abraham's son. And so we're reminded, of course, of the story we've already touched on a little bit today, The promise, the promise uh, to Abraham. Abraham has actually just died, verses 1 to 11. And though he had other sons from Keturah, uh, Isaac is the heir, uh, verse, verse 5 there. The child of promise. And we have had a brief account of his first son, Ishmael, 25, verse 12, and God's faithfulness. I'm speaking, in, We were speaking in the tea break about the fact that much common grace given to Hagar and, 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 and to Ishmael. Um, and, and God promised at the beginning that uh, Ishmael would become a great nation. Um, and God's faithfulness to his word, to his mother, Hagar, to make him into a great nation... That's come to pass. Twelve sons, tribal rulers of Ishmael's fractious people. But the promise, of course, is, is to Isaac and through Isaac. And God is faithful to his word. So we've now got, we've come to that point um, of, of, of Isaac and Rebekah and, and the seed, and, and, and so, so the text is inviting us to say, to ask, well, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen now? Isaac's been born, now Isaac is married, what's going to happen next? Second, we are expecting that Rebecca will produce an heir to the promise, and this event is, is expected, but it's delayed 20 years after. The marriage, um, 20 years after the marriage, verse 26. But when Rebecca becomes pregnant, it's twins, it's twins. And of a sovereign God, we ask, well, hold on, what's the point of twins? It, it just complicates everything, you know, um, but of course... Sorry to those of you who've got twins. <laughs> Sorry, but, but the point of twins, of course, is actually it's going to be to establish in the most decisive way the truth, the awesome truth of God's sovereign election. God has chosen one of the twins to be the heir of the promise and not the other. Jacob, not Esau. Now the text shows us that this distinction doesn't come from things that we might expect. First of all, of course, we see that that distinction, that election, is not grounded in nature, in the genetics of the situation. They have the same father and mother, verse 22. Neither is it found in seniority, order of birth. Actually, we're going to find that uh, the older will serve the younger, verse 23. And particularly to be emphasised, underlined, it's not found in merit, in personal merit. God's choice declared before they were born. Paul emphasises that, doesn't he, in Romans 9. Declared before they were born or have done anything good or bad. God's purpose is declared beforehand, indicating the decision in, it, in eternity. When we look at the, the two characters, uh, Jacob and Esau, actually we have to far- say that they are both equally worldly equally worldly, Esau, the vigorous sportsman, out hunting game, but actually focused only on this life, and Jacob, the stay-at-home deceiver, and reading the commentaries, commentators bend over backwards to find some kind of positive to say about the fact that Jacob stayed at home. You know, that somehow or other that was morally better. You know, but it's just nonsense, isn't it? Rather, his grasping of the heel actually evokes, if anything, Genesis three fifteen. It's a little bit like satanic cunning that, 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 that is there. So there we are in the text the focus of both jacob and esau actually seems to be pretty much on the here and now on the here and now side of the birthright actually not so much on god's promise but it seems to be more on the here and now side of things not that there isn't a a salvific part of it so esau sees it of no value if he's going to die by starvation. Verse 32, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? That's very here and now, isn't it? Later in the story, at Bethel, Jacob's uh, concerns actually seem pretty equally worldly. God has appeared to Jacob, but Jacob's response is, what he makes... Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey. He's fleeing now from Esau. I'm, uh, this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house. All very here and now stuff. Then the Lord will be my God, etc. So equally worldly it seems. and he's seizing the opportunity i have to say this don't we he's seizing the opportunity of esau's hunger to spring this matter of getting the birthright off him springing that tra- it's vicious it's it's inhuman this man jacob is a bad lot there's no way around that he's a bad lot so this election is not about merit Not about merit. And nor is it based on the preference of the head of the family. Isaac, verse uh, 28, uh, has this taste for wild game. He loves Esau. Actually, he wants to give uh, his blessing to Esau. So it's, it's... It's not to do with the the head of the family either. So, this really is, the text is underlining, election is unconditional. It is unconditional. It is free grace. The reason is found only in God and not in us. This is an awesome truth. And third, just looking again at the the text here, the the text seems to emphasise the enormity of Esau's despising his birthright. He eats the stew and leaves without a thought, verse 34. The stew is red. David on Monday mentioned about that being connected with leadership. I'm interested to hear that. The stew is red. He is red. Uh, What he wants is, is... is, is what he is and nothing more, it's kind of like, has that kind of connotation, it seems. Without the intervention of grace, you know, I'm as I'm happy as I am, I don't need this stuff, I, you know. Without the intervention of the grace of God, that's how we all are. And one way of understanding the insertion of chapter 26 into the story before It's worked out with the blessing of uh, Isaac being stolen in chapter 27. One way of understanding chapter 26, its insertion into the story, is is, is to underline the magnitude of what Esau lost. Chapter 26, verses 1 to 6, God's promise to Isaac. 26, verses 7 to 11, God's protection. 26:12 12 to 19, God's prosperity. And most of all, 26, 20 to 33, God's presence. But Esau just like it's nothing. And the last verses in the chapter return to Esau's godless choices, marrying Hittite women to the great distress of, uh, of uh, Isaac and Rebekah. So we are set up then from chapter 26 set up for chapter 27 where though he wanted Isaac's blessing a repentance of his former choice seeks it with tears nevertheless he can't get it. It was stolen from him. We could go back to that former message about God's Overruling of human sin and certainly this is a, a a big example of it here, God's electing purpose prevails. Jacob not for any merit in him gets the blessing. This is a huge signpost po- to the reality of God who foretells what's going to happen from the beginning, who tells the end from the beginning there in uh, in verse 23 God's electing purpose an election of a huge number that no one can number but nevertheless God's choice the great doctrine of election you have not chosen me but I have chosen you and perhaps that applies especially to pastors So there's a quick survey of the passage underlining the doctrine of God's sovereign election. Now, obviously, uh, the passage and its teaching on election could be applied in many, many different ways. But what are its implications for the pastor and his work? How is it that God's electing purpose is the foundation is foundational of the pastor's work let me give you four perhaps five thoughts here four or five headings first of all let's think about the pastor's confidence we're back there again aren't we i come so often upon pastors who are not confident they're worried Election and the pastor's confidence. The apostle Paul describes himself in, Ch- in Titus chapter 1, verse 1 Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. I'm an apostle for the faith, or to bring the elect to faith. The purpose of Christian ministry is to bring the elect to faith. We can see it in those terms. We are instruments, but, given the doctrine of election, ultimately, the outcome is guaranteed. That's not meant to make us lazy, but it is meant to make us balanced. And because the outcome is guaranteed, It's a confidence booster for pastors. Despite everything against him, including his own sin, Jacob will become a man of faith because he has been chosen by God. Before time began, he was elect in Christ, the elect of God. Who through his righteous life and atoning death has merited and provided eternal salvation for his people. It's got a note here to Romans 8, verse 30. Let me just read it to you. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified, that great unbreakable chain. And that last uh, verb, in the past tense, it is so certain, those he glorified. Such that it's impossible for anything to separate him from God's love. And what is true of Jacob is true for all the elect. And a pastor can hold on to that, can't he? In times of trouble, in times of barrenness, you know we so easily put you know, put put it down to a pastor's gifting, and it's all down to him as to whether a church is really taking off or not. But this balances that. This balances that. God's election is such that uh, here. Isaac has to pray for 20 years. It doesn't exclude the necessity of prayer. But it's not in vain. Pastor, you can be confident when the world is against Christ. The elect will not be deceived. Mark chapter 13. Pastor, a confidence, perhaps this is in particular... A confidence coming from the doctrine of election, a confidence which enables you to pace yourself and to avoid burnout, to avoid burnout. People's salvation does not ultimately depend on your work rate. As a young student, the first time I came across reform teaching, I was in a little church in Brighton, run pastored by a remarkable part-time pastor man called Leslie Hill. And this was the first time I'd come across Reformed teaching. And there were many, you know, wrestlings about the whole thing, me as a, a young 18, 19-year-old. But one of the things that Leslie Hill said to me was, I'm so glad that I'm a Calvinist because if I believed that everybody's salvation depended on me... I would drive myself mad. I would drive myself mad. Because if you think honestly that, that is the truth, isn't it? But this gives confidence, it gives balance. Yes, we do as much as we can. But ultimately, thank, thank God, it's not in our hands. God will do it. So, a foundation of confidence in the pastoral ministry. So that's election and the pastor's confidence. Let's now think, though, about election and the pastor's preaching. As I said, preaching is despised in our country at the moment. Election and the pastor's preaching, the preaching which the world so much despises, actually, in the light of the doctrine of election, could not be more significant. What was it that, as it were, executed the decree of election in the lives of Esau and Jacob? It was their reaction to the promise, to the promise to Abraham, which is ultimately the gospel. The way they reacted to that promise, tied up with the birthright was actually the outworking of God's electing purposes in their lives you preach the promise esau despised it jacob at first probably for less than the right reasons desired it desired to have it and that was the outworking Of God's electing purposes. And as the gospel is preached by us. God executes his choice among our listeners. As we speak of Christ. And the promise of Christ? Eternal plans and destinies are being settled. Oh my. Oh my. This is no place for just being the congregation's pal. Or for trying to show off your academic credentials. This is far too serious. This is a place for careful, humble handling of the word of God with utmost love for our poor hearers because they are listening to very, very dangerous men. (laughs) Aren't they? Very dangerous men we are. We are armed and dangerous, armed with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, executing through us God's electing purposes. As the Spirit is with us when we speak, there is a sense in which God Himself speaks, raising the dead or passing by or even hardening others. get that don't we in in the New Testament those uh, startling words Acts 13 48 when the Gentiles heard this they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord and all who were appointed to eternal life believed wow so don't let your church despises preaching. In fact, perhaps they need reminding in these terms what is actually going on when the gospel is preached on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. And don't let preaching be sidelined and for the music to become the big thing. Nothing wrong with the music, nothing wrong with praising God, of course. This is so important. And don't give the turn the pulpit over to what one of my sons call calls "have a go, Daves." You know, I'm away on holiday. Oh, who'd like? You know, who's, who wears trousers and would like to have a preach? You know, <laughs> you know, what on earth? Now, of course, dear men need to start somewhere. You start them in the prayer meeting. Of course, you, like, they have to have an opportunity. But don't turn the pulpit over to just anybody to have a go, Dave. You know, this is serious. This is serious, isn't it? So, the pastor, the doctrine of election, pastoral preaching. But it's not just the weight of our ministry. See the weightiness of who we are, what we do. Once we see it in this context. But it's not just the weight of our ministry but the freeness of the gospel offer which flows out of the doctrine of election. It gives life and freeness to our preaching of the gospel. Think about it. There was actually nothing to distinguish the elect Jacob from godless Esau. I've tried to underline that. Looking at them to begin with, they were no different. In one respect, they were equally worldly. The fecklessness of Esau is no worse than the ruthlessness of Jacob in doing down his brother. We can say to sinners if God chooses people like dastardly Jacob, then why not you? I often use this illustration. People hear the gospel and they respond by saying, I'm the wrong type, I'm just not the religious type. But the doctrine of election frees us from all that. You imagine, you imagine this uh, skyscraper. And you imagine mankind organised in the skyscraper. And there are all sorts of different ways of organising mankind in the skyscraper. Nice people at the top. Not quite so nice, a bit lower down. Politicians and all the rest of them down in the basement. If salvation is down to us, for something in us, how good we are, then somehow there, there is, a, there is a, a cut-off point somewhere. There would be a cut-off point in, in, the, in the skyscraper. And people below that would be able to say, I'm the wrong type. Or we might organise people according to their gullibility which we think might be a bit like faith. You know, All the, the young gullible ones at the top and all the old cynics down the bottom. If it's all down to our faith there will be a cut-off point on the wrong type. But how, this is the doctrine of election. However we organise mankind in the skyscraper God's cut is always vertical not horizontal it's unconditional election you see and therefore no one can say I'm not the right type and here's an example if God can choose someone like Jacob then why not you it's unconditional election and they come back to you and they say how do I know if I'm chosen and you say to them you'll never know by looking in the mirror or at your social profile But the answer is simple. Will you surrender your life to Jesus Christ? Will you embrace the promise? And if you will, you do so because you're chosen by God. The offer is to all. So there's the doctrine of election and the pastors preaching its weightiness and its freeness. Pastors' confidence path, pastors' preaching, election now and the pastors' shepherding. The pastors' shepherding. Grasping the truth of election. What does that mean for a pastor's dealings with the flock? Let me just again throw out three suggestions. First, love them. What is the great word in Malachi 1 verse 2? Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. Jeremiah 31, I have loved them with an everlasting love. Who are these people in the congregation? With sound professions of faith, these are people loved from before the beginning of time by God, even the awkward ones. So, Pastor, be careful that you love them too, because they're loved by God. The sheep for whom the Good Shepherd laid down his life. Oh, young Pastor, don't treat the church as a career. You know, I go to one church, I make a bit of a name there, I move on to the next rung of the ladder to another church. That's not how you deal with God's elect. God's beloved first love those people in your pastoral shepherding secondly of course look for the marks of grace though we come as sinners we change, Jacob changed God used all sorts of things to change him the seed in good soil bears fruit, don't be content with mere church attendance they have been chosen to holiness, Ephesians 1 To be conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8. Press that home in pastoral preaching and pastoral dealings and church discipline if necessary. Look for the marks of grace. Third, be full of compassion in pastoral dealings. These are God's people, God's beloved In a hostile world, they don't need hostility from you as well. Do they? They are God's embattled people. Jacob's going to be frightened stiff of coming back and facing Esau. There's struggles going on. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the spirit and the flesh. There will be times, of course, when you have to be straight. But be full of compassion. These are God's elect in a hostile world. Pastors' confidence, pastors' preaching an election, election and the pastors' shepherding, election and the pastors' demeanour. Election and the pastors' demeanour. There's no doubt that the character of a pastor does impact the character of a church. It's, it is simply true. It's true, isn't it? Right? A critical pastor produces critical Christians who very often move to other churches and criticise them as well. You know, that, that, that kind of thing happens. Election should shape the pastor himself in a number of wonderful and good ways. Election should shape us. First, election should make the pastor a humble man. A humble man. There's no, there was no difference. There was nothing in us so many pastors are prone to pride I can have to put up my hand there as well so many have a list young young men have a list they think of themselves so much uh, and they, they have a list of what they look for before they will even consider a church well I wouldn't look upon that, no no no, no. because I've got to have this and I've got to have students and I've got to have I've got to have you know, this kind of salary and there's got to be waitrose around the corner and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Before, Oh, well, perhaps I'll think about it. Whatever happened to Isaiah knowing nothing, saying, here am I, send me." Whatever happened to that? But a person who understands and has been shaped by the doctrine of election is really made a humble person, a humble person. I think it's um, I think it was uh, what's his name, um, R.C. Sproul, 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 yeah. Um, that, uh, that that theologian. I think he talks in, in, in something I come across from him. I think he talks there about having students, having some students round to his home on a Sunday night or something like that for you know for. I don't know if they have toast and tea in the in, in, in USA, I don't know. But him getting into conversation with a young lady, who, who a, young, a, young, uh, a young student, and him beginning to ask her why she was a Christian, and the girl who lives next door to her in the halls of residence isn't. And he puts that question to her, and, and, and she answers quite rightly in many ways, well, I believed, and, and she didn't. Um, and uh, then he said, "Well, why did you believe? It? Well, it's because I saw my necessity of Christ, and and, and she didn't. Okay, uh, well, why was it that you saw your necessity of Christ and she didn't?" <laughs> and then the clangor came. I guess it was because I'm more humble than her. <laughs> you see that? <laughs> But we know it's not because we're more humble. It was because God simply loved us and that makes us truly humble. It was nothing in us. Nothing in us at all. And that needs to shape a pastor, doesn't it? Why are you a Christian, Jacob? God's grace. And Jacob would said would would say, I could so easily have been Esau. I deserve to be Esau. Yet God will bless me. Wow. So a pastor's demeanour, humility. But second, election should make a pastor joyful. I would go so far as to say, make him a fun man. Within the constraints of his own personality. All right. Well, how is that? Well, this salvation... It's so off the wall, isn't it? I mean we've got a little bit of a taste of that when we've looked at Isaac Isaac's birth. You know, there is a holy ridiculousness about it. Abraham a hundred years old changing nappies. This is this is stupid. This is silly. But it's marvellous. Oh it's marvelous. God should be so good to me. Isaac, laughter. Me, a child of God. How wonderful. How ridiculous. How incongruous. And that should affect our personality, shouldn't it? There's a holy yippee <laughs> about being a Christian chosen by God against all the odds. And third, of course, the pastor's demeanour. It should make the pastor very patient, humble, fun and patient. God so patient with Jacob. What a man he was, What what a terrible chap Jacob was. But God works with him and wrestles with him and brings all sorts of things to him. And patiently, 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 he changes Jacob and those marks of grace begin to emerge. And if God is patient with us as his elect, again, pastor, who are you to be impatient? Aren't you to follow in the footsteps of God, in the footsteps of Christ? he chose sinners and they take time to change and he's patient and so should we be well there's much more that we could say but we'll, we'll stop at that point and uh, may the Lord just help us to take in the whole doctrine of election don't look down upon yourself You know, the world looks down upon us. Actually, you are I've said I've used the word dangerous, you are a very, very significant person. A very significant person as you carry the promise of God in this generation. Well, let's just bow our heads and pray. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the church, for the churches. Represented here, and indeed many others that we know and love, not represented here. We thank you for your churches, large and small, across this whole country. And Lord, we thank you for the enormous potential, O oh Lord, there, stored up within your churches, Lord. To be little outposts of heaven, in a very dark and difficult world. And Lord, we want to be pastors... And we want to grow leadership teams. O oh Lord, which will, as it were, set those churches alight. And make them all that they should be. And Lord, therefore we pray that you will shape our lives. Help us to rejoice in Christ, to rejoice in the gospel. And Lord, to show that different life that you have brought us into. Lord, we You are so great. We worship before you. Thank you for everyone here. Bless the churches as we say. In Jesus' name. Amen.